Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Dozman, and with me today is Tad DeLay, author of Against, What Does the White Evangelical Want? In our moment of crisis and rage, this question is everywhere. Scholars ask from where its desires emerged, pundits divine its political future, and the public asks how we lapsed into social chaos. For their part, white evangelicals feel misunderstood while failing to see the the direction of their ambitions. We must interrogate its aims not only through its past or current trends, but also through the various fantasies by which it rejects and enlivens reality. Tad DeLay is the author of The Cynic and the Fool and God is Unconscious. He teaches philosophy and religious studies in Denver. Tad DeLay, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for inviting me on, Stephen. Uh, so just to kind of uh, begin, can you kind of introduce yourself to listeners and maybe talk a bit about your academic background and what your main areas of interest are? Sure. I did my doctorate in religion and I hold master's degrees in philosophy and theology as well. Um, and I am chiefly interested in psychoanalysis and critical theory, uh, sort of, you know, um, the uses of Marxian political thought, uh, especially um, in, in terms of politics, in terms of climate change, migration, fascism studies. Um, I'm kind of interested in the big mix of uh, discourses that seem very timely today. Um, and I, uh, I guess I'll end it in the background of all of that. I'm very interested in how religion intersects with these overlapping uh, oppressions and aggressions and, and ways that people try to make uh, life terrible for themselves or for others. Awesome. So um, to get started, uh, one of your main primary points of reference in this book is the French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan, who helps you unpack the cultural and psychological logic of American evangelicalism. Uh, You write, white evangelicalism is a faith organized around fantasies, curating the enjoyment of, not the flight from, turmoil and anxiety. So there's a lot to unpack there regarding things like lack, desire, repression, and acting out. So can you kind of unpack some of the terminology here and give us a sense of what you mean when you say uh, the fantasies curate turmoil and anxiety? Yeah, sure. Well, I, one of my uh, suspicions going into this project was that I could just kind of put the theory front-loaded at the beginning of the text and then let that underwrite the type of analysis that I'm trying to do for the rest of the text. But I think that people try to think of evangelicalism as uh, costing a lot uh, psychically from people, right? There's a there's a tremendous amount of angst. There's a lot of self-repression. And my wager was that actually there's an enjoyment in 
that type of repression and enjoyment in the anxiety and so that they're not actually giving up something so much as they are um, uh, avoiding the shame that perhaps they should feel at commitments that are te- is tearing the world apart, tearing their families apart, making their grandchildren feel contempt for them, etc., etc. I, I wanted to explore a relationship to belief in which anxiety could be enjoyed as an end in itself. So I am using Lacan, who talks about uh, the enjoyment generated by sadism and masochism. And one of the things that I think is is fairly interesting about Lacan's way of thinking about enjoyment, uh, well, first off, it's important to say, I think, that for psychoanalysis, it's not the object, it's not getting the object that creates the enjoyment. It's the, it's the coming near getting the object that creates enjoyment. It's the narrowly missing what you think you desire that creates the grounds for the continued uh, pursuit of desire, right? In other words, getting what we simply think we want has the effect of, of stopping the motion of desire, but not quite getting it keeps desire in motion. So psychoanalysis works on the idea that the object cause of desire generates our pursuit of things, but we actually enjoy more if we don't quite get what we want immediately. So another thing that Lacan layers on top of that is that uh, the masochism is primarily over the sadism. So we often approach our political struggles, for example, thinking, um, okay, if the, you know, the white male, like, uh, you know, the white lash that we've seen in recent years is, is, um, is characteristic of Trumpism, uh, that this is in some way a, a sadism, which uh, is, is willing to undergo a certain amount of self-pain in order to inflict damage on the other, right? And I do think that there is some usefulness to thinking about things in those terms. But I'm trying to wager that actually, what, what if we reverse the relationship and actually say that self-destruction is primary, that people enjoy the self-pain and then are willing to uh, hurt the other in order to justify themselves so that they don't look like an idiot for destroying their lives constantly, right? Um, so one example I use is when I have a relative who votes away their own access to healthcare. One way to look at that is to say that uh, he just wants to, you know, um, you know, destroy Obama's legacy or. Uh, take away health care from people who he thinks uh, don't deserve health care, and he's willing to risk his own life in the process of that. Um, but actually, most people, uh, people are immensely creative at destroying themselves in all types of ways. So what if we read that masochism, that that self-destructive element as a, as a type of primary enjoyment, and then say that people do things to others in order to kind of cover over the way that they're just actively destroying themselves? To kind of flesh out some of the theoretical discussion, you argue that the ultimate white evangelical fantasy is one of chosenness, which you then connect with questions of race, geography, nationalism, politics, issues of gender and sexuality. Can you kind of untangle these a bit regarding what you call the already forgiven and shameless chosenness? Yes, I, this is obviously something that is not uh, particular or invented by white evangelicalism. Um, but you know, white evangelicalism looks at Abraham's blessing in the book of Genesis, or it looks at this concept of a chosen nation or a chosen people uh, from the ancient Israelite cult, and it tries to appropriate that and make it sort of a, a Christianized simulacrum of this this historic concept in Jewish thought. Um, and what I think they're doing is, I make the claim that chosenness is the old 
ultimate doctrine that it can't give ground on. There's all all this discussion uh, among people who who try to come up with kind of I, I guess clear cut definitions of what evangelicalism is that you know it, it has a lot to do with the cross or with you know a certain type of atonement or biblical inerrancy or hell or whatever else. And my wager is that actually none of these things ultimately matter. They can give ground on all of those things, that the only doctrine that can't be replaced in white evangelicalism, which I'm framing as a particular historical sect of Protestant Christianity that emerges in the 20th century, right? So, so within this sect, the only thing that can't give ground on at all is chosenness. And in the more familiar way that we think of chosenness outside of theological terms is, of course, white supremacy, right? So, so there's a, a very clear carryover between there's a there's a lot of of shared thinking and and shared um, hierarchical thought between white supremacy on the one hand and chosenness on the other. But to be chosen is to be God's special creature. It's to uh, have access to a certain type of reason that the the pagan other does not. It's to have the truth and to know that no matter how bad you are, you are already pre-forgiven. So it doesn't matter if you are bad, right? You know, um, so I think we're kind of seeing the ramifications of that all around us right now, right? Um, it, it, nothing that the white evangelical does can be kind of judged in a moral tier because uh, morally they're already forgiven. Um, if they're not forgiven yet, God will forgive their new sins today. Nothing matters, right? There's nothing ultimately at stake, so they can inflict themselves on the world however they wish. Yeah, so to kind of get into the main part of the book where you kind of do this really interesting history of evangelicalism. Um, One thing you point towards is a sort of fantasy or desire for the end of the world that runs through this history. And you argue that in recent decades with shifts in media, these desires are intensifying. So first, what's the history of these desires and fantasies for the end? And how and why are they starting to intensify? Well, to some extent, there's always been an apocalyptic sort of end of the world element to Christianity. As as far as we can tell, I I think it's fair to say that early Christians did not expect the world to be around that much longer. And then when the world did seem to, in fact, go on, they had to modulate themselves, start organizing into communities. Um, They developed hierarchy, social hierarchies, kind of reintegrated themselves into Roman economy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So this kind of utopian community doesn't work anymore if the world is going to continue on. Um, but apocalypticism kind of ebbs and flows over time. And there seems to me to be a very clear uptick in apocalyptic thought in the 19th century. There, there's a lot of reasons that this could be. There's a lot more communication. There's a, a, raise in, there's a rise in literacy. There's a, just a, a proliferation of, of self-proclaimed preachers, um, both on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, during the 19th century, we have the revival period where people can kind of, you know, ordain themselves and just jump on a horse and go from town to town preaching. And as a uh, as a side effect of this, we end up seeing the rise of these end of the world doomsday preachers. I don't think that it's completely coincidental that in the 18th century awakenings and then the, the 19th century awakening as well, that we start to we, we see this um, happening at the at the precise moment when there's a lot of reorganization in society, uh, namely the Industrial Revolution is driving people from 
uh, you know, the rural populations into urban city centers. And um, there's not just, uh, you know, a rise in technology uh, and a rise in concentrations of crowds, but there's also, um, there's a lot more misery. There's pollution, there's child labor, right? So I, I think that if we want to think about the the rise of this current apocalyptic moment, then we kind of, I think it makes sense to trace it back to at least the industrial revolution and the great changes that were happening in that period, uh, or the great transformation, um, as some people call it. Um, in, uh, to kind of clarify where that leads up, uh, we don't keep very good data on, which I think we really should, but we, we don't keep very good data on exactly how many people think that the world is about to end. Um, but it does seem to me to be about two thirds of white evangelicals think that well, this is kind of the last century. About a third of Americans seem to think that Jesus is coming back sometime in the next hundred ish years or so. And that has severe ramifications for how we think about social social policy and climate change and war. Um, so, so that's that's kind of my best guess at at where we've kind of come from, and I, I think that this apocalyptic fervor that we're in right now is is something that is less than two centuries old, and it's worth saying that the the idea even of a rapture of Christ taking the church up into heaven uh, before people die, even that idea is less than two hundred years old. These are these are historical developments that are indexed to other types of changes in society. Yeah, so kind of along those lines, you turn to the left behind novels. And part of what I love about the book is you do a great job of looking at the kind of alternative media ecosystem that churches have kind of set up. Um, You argue that these novels tell us a lot about evangelical fantasies beyond the fact that they're just kind of weird, Um, especially with the way white evangelicals desire to occupy a position of epistemological marginalization. Can you kind of unpack that and what these novels tell us about evangelical desire and fantasy? Yes, well, we started seeing the rise of uh, sort of a narratization of the end times starting in, uh, I think, Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth was the uh, first version of this in the, uh, I believe, sometime in the mid to late 70s, if, if memory serves. And then more recently, we saw the Left Behind novels, which uh, altogether sold something on the order of 80 to 100 million copies, right? I mean, this is no small niche of the of the market, right? This is this is very popular in evangelical world. Um, it uh, basically it begins with um, a, a series of characters who are all kind of Christian adjacent, but not committed Christians. So the rapture happens within a few pages of the first book, and you have all of these main characters that we're going to come to know and love that are left behind and having to deal with the seven-year period of tribulation during which the Antichrist uh, kind of uh, consolidates power within the United Nations and transforms it into a group called the global community. And basically, this uh, book series, if you read them, you would see basically every 80s and 90s culture war trope played out in kind of a, a crude, uh, laughable parody of itself. Um, so we see at one point, um, you know, the Antichrist uh, impregnates a girl because he's having premarital sex. And then he has her abort the child because, uh, you know, only a devil could want to perform abortions or something. You know, you see these types of things kind of played out. Um, the There's like a you know, co-op model that kind of 
keeps food in circulation among Christians because it's playing into this idea that Christians are persecuted. Uh, and the co-op model itself almost kind of works like a Christian homeschooling network. Um, there's a, a group of Christians that has like paramilitary equipment and can kill people. And that's justified because, you know, the soldiers they're killing have pledged their loyalty unbeknownst to them, but still, nevertheless, they pledge their loyalty to the devil. Um, and to me, this, this, it, it, it kind of puts right on the surface and, and not, not just in Jerry B. Jenkins and, and Tim LaHaye, the authors, but the, the, the reception that this book series got, the massive appeal, kind of shows how much appetite there is to be fed this idea that you are persecuted and um, you can play out your fantasies of, of murdering liberals. Uh, you can play out your fantasies that everybody that you don't like about, you know, secular culture is actually of the devil, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's absolutely absurd, but it's, it's kind of wearing this, this jouissance, this, uh, you know, this, this kind of sadism right there, like right out in the open, wearing it on their sleeve. Yeah. So you mentioned, um, one of the things that comes up in the novels is education. And um, obviously, like there were a lot of laws being put in place um, in the mid 20th century to block like school integration. But you also point out that like private education, Christian education more than doubled in that period of time. And also homeschooling skyrocketed as well. So can you kind of unpack what is the history of evangelicals and their relationship to education and how did it change in response to the civil rights movements? Yeah, sure. Well, so um, this, I, I don't have all of the numbers right in front of me, but I have a whole chapter kind of uh, detailing the whole period between the end of the Civil War um, on up through the 80s and the, the, the way that, uh, uh, you know, the segregation academies were sort of transformed into the abortion issue. But um, the, um, the, the gist of it is that after the Civil War, education didn't really exist, uh, especially not in the South. It did not exist at all. And so there was this big push from, I think, well-meaning but ultimately naive liberals that, you know, one way to keep Southerners from destroying themselves again or just tearing the country apart is to give them education so they can learn to read and, and won't go off seceding from the union again. Um, so there's basically this this best practices drive. There's like, you know, the Rockefellers and all of these very wealthy characters are sort of pouring money into initiatives to replicate in the South the best practices of the North. And immediately there's pushback. There's pushback all over the place. Um, and uh, as early as the 80s, kind of like in a decade after Reconstruction, we start seeing Southern preachers lamenting that it is not just um, unworkable, but it is actually evil to tax white people in order to pay for what they would call the pretended education of the black child, right? So, so we start seeing this pushback in the 80s, but literacy starts dropping dramatically around the turn of the century, sort of in the first 10, 20 years of the 20th century. Um, literacy is just uh, skyrocketing and the rate of illiteracy is dropping dramatically. And that's um, so like the, these uh, efforts are, are largely successful. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that the schools are completely segregated. We're talking about the Jim Crow South area or era. Um, and then I don't think that it's uh, completely a side issue that, of course, like the debate over evolution starts becoming popular in this middle period of the, of the Jim Crow South. Right. So you have, for example, the Scopes Monkey Trial, where William Jennings Bryan is you know, trying to prosecute uh, Scopes and Darrow over whether or not it's OK to teach evolution. Um, that 
that happens in 1925 uh, and everybody remembers it as, you know, this ridiculous display of like anti-evolution belief and like, you know, getting mixed up in the court system. But also the truth of that is that the Scopes monkey trial happened within two or three years of the height of lynching. Um, it happened about five to 10 years after the height of um, when Southerners were putting up monuments to Civil War generals, right? So this, this debate about knowledge and education and what a classroom can do is working hand in hand with Jim Crow South racist tendencies, right? And then the most um, you know, famous case of how this starts to unravel or at least transform is with Brown versus Board of Education, which there's the desegregation of certain types of law schools or professional or graduate schools before that. Um, and then we have uh, Brown versus Board of Education happen that you know, ostensibly desegregates schools, but it doesn't really work. So after Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, I think, yeah, 54 and then 55 was when uh, Brown II... Uh, um, implemented an actual plan to desegregate schools. Uh, between uh, the decade after Brown versus Board of Education, the South passed as many as 450 laws meant to prohibit or postpone integration of public schools. So it wasn't until the late 60s that all Southern districts finally started even pretending to get into motion on desegregation. And even then, it doesn't really work. And so we start to see the rise of the what uh, people at the time even called the segregation academy. Um, the you know, you if you start integrating a school district somewhere in Mississippi, within two years, all of the white students are gone. And there's three new segregated schools that are whites only Protestant schools. Um, and that means that the Protestant school at this time is doing something different than like the Catholic private school had traditionally done, right? Catholic schools had existed for a long time. But the Protestant version of a Christian school happens in response to segregation as a way to forestall or get around segregation. So that I think is very interesting, the way that we can't um, disentangle um, not not just because like you know segregation persists today um, and is actually by several metrics getting worse in in many places in the country but we, we can't disentangle segregation from anti-blackness. Uh, we, oh, sorry, we can't disentangle education and uh, proclivities towards or against knowledge from a type of anti-blackness. That's kind of baked into our whole history after the Civil War to the present. Yeah, so moving on to the next chapter, um, to evangelical views of like sexuality. Um, you argue that evangelical opposition to more liberal or open attitudes towards sexuality is ironically related to a fantasy of enjoyment. Um, you look at both like the abstinence movements in the eighties and nineties, um, books like Josh Harris's I kiss dating goodbye, um, which funnily enough, last I heard he had kind of, to some degree renounced his, stance on that um, he says you, he did. Of- you know yeah it encouraged people to go look it up i've never actually seen him do anything close to what i think is is sort of a real apology for anything it's it's kind of a i'm glad i'm sorry it hurt people but the underlying beliefs that he's promoting don't seem to have gone anywhere for him which i think is very interesting like in connection with what you're what you're saying here yeah but um in any case um there's kind of this interlinking of enjoyment and prohibition um, in kind of a Lacanian sense. Can you kind of unpack how that works and how does this play out in evangelical fantasies around sexuality? Yeah, yeah. Well, so uh, for Lacan, for example, um, the the way that uh, one 
enjoys is that you know when you when you tell the kid to not put their hand in the cookie jar what do they want to do they all of a sudden want to put their hand in the cookie jar right it's it's the very act of prohibiting something that draws one's attention right so so we have really good data at this point that basically everybody has sex outside of marriage and basically it's always been just about the same right now there's been a little bit of a change over time which is probably accounted for uh, by the rising age of a first marriage but uh, around even I mean, if the the rate of people who have intercourse outside of marriage is actually higher than the part of the population that is uh, straight, right? So, so, so like basically everybody has sex outside of marriage, um, including Christians. Um, it, it's, um, and the, you know, there's like these myths, I think that like only like 80% of, of evangelicals or something they, they often tell themselves, they parrot these myths that, um, that like one in five of them don't have sex outside of marriage. Um, all of this is completely bunk. It, it, it doesn't, if, if you go kind of like later into their life, or if you have like kind of a wider definition of what sexuality is, uh, everybody's having sex outside of marriage. And yet, um, something like a third of Americans say that sex outside of marriage is wrong and they will base it on religious reasons. And so there's a huge gap between the myth and the reality. And I think that that is a particularly interesting way to think about how enjoyment is working, right? So so we're talking about a culture that puts lots of rules on itself that's very repressive and in, um, in many ways um, and perhaps doesn't have as many sexual experiences as it could have otherwise. But I don't know that we really have data to support even that either. But nevertheless, like there's this whole there's this idea that your one is not supposed to have sex outside of marriage um, and nobody lives up to it literally nobody is living up to this I mean you, you can find like you know counter examples if, if you want like on a case-by-case scenario but not according to the, the the big statistics here so I think that this is kind of suggesting something about how sexual enjoyment works and the need to believe that there's something, um, I don't know, like particularly special or unique about the experience of marriage or something like that. It, it seems to be going on. Um, Josh Harris's uh, book is particularly interesting. I never read it. This is another case of there's a number of things like kind of in the book that I, you know, didn't read, but I was kind of adjacent to it in my culture. So I never read Josh Harris's book, but I knew a lot of people who did. And he, you know, promotes this idea not of of dating, but of courtship, right? And, um, you know, kind of hearkening back to this older ideal of, of treating sexuality in a very kind of rigid and respectful ostensibly way. Um, and, uh, you know, at the end of the day, again, the data bears out that whether you want to call it courtship or dating, nobody lives up to any of this. So, it, it, but nevertheless, the myth persists. It's not something that one, and I think that maybe, maybe I can, if I can try to land this plane, um, um, the, the interesting thing about the way that white evangelicalism thinks about sexuality to me is that it's not like something where a sufficient amount of evidence against, uh, you know, how, how it thinks about sexuality, like, you know, this doesn't really work. No amount of evidence seems to matter. Even if 100% of the population fails to live up to the ideals, people persist not just in promoting the ideals, but believing that there is somebody out there actually living up to these ideals. And I, I think that that's a very kind of interesting way to think about fantasy and the way that fantasy is playing into this kind of enjoyment. Yeah, so... Kind of following off of that, one of the kind of more disturbing 
ends of this uh, is that this worldview has some troubling implications for consent as well as non-heteronormative sexuality. Um, It's not just white evangelical views on sexuality, but is mostly developed from a heteronormative male perspective. So how do women and their sexual enjoyment and autonomy fit into this? And where do LGBTQ plus people fit into this worldview? Yeah, well, I do talk a little bit about the, you know, the the classic, uh, you know, the, the medical diagnosis that was still used up into the early 20th century of hysteria, right, where where doctors would uh, literally diagnose women as having a, a roaming womb and that womb would, you know, uh, because it wasn't, you know, I, was, I was either having too much sex or not enough sex and so the womb would, would uh, you know, retreat up into the body, put pressure on the heart and cause the woman to become crazy, right? Um, I also talk about the use of conversion therapies and the various types of ways that uh, evangelicals often torture their LGBTQ uh, children. Um, and those are just, um, they're, they're gruesome. And I, I wanted to, I hope I did a good enough job kind of honoring the ways that heteropatriarchy um, um, uh, it ignores, oppresses, brutalizes uh, people who have experiences that I simply can't identify with, right? As a as a um, as a uh, as a fairly straightish male, um, but I, I do think it's important to recognize that um, heteropatriarchy, like conservatism and reactionary thought in general, it what what it's doing is it's enjoying a type of hierarchy, right? And and once it kind of sets certain parameters of rules in place, there's not really a, a, a way that it can bend on that without kind of disintegrating its, its entire hierarchy. So so it wasn't until I think the, was at some point in the late 1970s, if I remember correctly, um, I, I mentioned this in the book, but I, I can't remember the precise year, but it wasn't until somewhere in the late 1970s, if I, if I remember correctly, that there was even such a thing as a legal category of, of rape within marriage, right? And so- uh, to me, that's a particularly gruesome example of how heteropatriarchy can embed itself into law so much that like the, a, a category for this most grotesque thing simply does not exist. It simply is not illegal until a precise historical moment. Um, and, and to me, I think that women had to have the right to reproductive choice, uh, to birth control, to abortion, to these various other things before society could begin having the the conversations around consent, right? Like it it seems kind of intuitive. I don't think that I'm saying anything that interesting there, but it seems to me that the relations of production uh, in a very literal sense here had to change before the, the, you know, the ideological justifications for those arrangements could itself begin to deconstruct or rearrange, if that makes sense. Uh, was there more that you wanted to to go into on that, or uh, I, I don't know if I'm rabbit trailing down a, an area that you'd um, if if you had a separate question there, I wanted to give you a chance to jump back in. Oh, I just wanted to kind of let you unpack. Kind of, it's it seemed like consent was just a weird issue in this worldview, and I just wanted to unpack that. But yeah, well, I, well, I mean, I guess the the shortest way to say it is that sex is either okay or not okay, and there's kind of no gray area when you tie when you tie sexuality to whether or not somebody is is married and God has given the green light. So, uh, I mean, that that's why we kind of I think see um, uh, you know even if evangelical youth uh, delay sex for something like six to eighteen months, depending on what study we're going off of. Uh, if we're just talking about intercourse, they 
there's actually higher rates of different types of of other types of sex, right? Um, so so there, there's kind of like if you, if you draw a line and say you shall not pass this line, then that basically encourages all the other things, um, and it kind of works on the same again this very binary structure of this is right, this is wrong, this is crossing a line, this is not. Uh, you have a green light to have sex, now you don't, right? And and what gets lost in that is any sort of notion of consent because sex is either okay or it's not, and it, there's never any sort of gray area. Um, it's never okay for one person, but not okay for the other person, etc., etc. Yeah, I grew up in a church that kind of had a similar binary view on uh, just issues of like whether sex is good or moral or not. So I could relate a lot to that. Um, kind of moving on, um, evangelicals, uh, there's a lot of news about their views on abortion and their resistance to that. But you also bring up um, contraceptives. Um, how do contraceptives fit into their worldview? I, I think to me, that's a, a simpler question again of, of going back to this idea that the reactionary conservative mind, um, this is an idea that I'm drawing from Corey Robin, who has an excellent book called The uh, Reactionary Mind. Um, yeah. but, uh, but conservatism has always been uh, all about the preservation of a certain hierarchy, right? So uh, men over women, white over black, but also, you know, there's, there's, I, I think, a really compelling case to be made that um, when, um, when women are having their rights to uh, reproductive choice or even contraception um, stripped from them, as a, as a white woman, you might still wager that your position in the hierarchy is still better than that of a, a black woman or a black man, right? So there's this this whole there's this love of hierarchy that's very very easy if you're at the pinnacle of the hierarchy, but even if you're a few rungs uh, down, you can still benefit from that hierarchy in notable ways. So I, I do think that uh, yeah. You know, if if we do see Roe v. Wade overturned, the way that the case law inter inter interconnects um, would would say that the Griswold decision that that legalized L access to birth control is actually not that far removed, right? Like there's the same uh, argument about privacy and all of that, uh, or more recently going in the other direction, the Hobby Lobby decision saying that corporations can have religious beliefs and the corporations can religiously believe that birth control is bad. Um, th- these are these are bizarre situations. Right. Uh, but the, um, you know, I, I think that there's there's a desire for hierarchy. Um, there's also just kind of this uh, contempt that I think a lot of conservatives feel about the world as if everyone is having way more sex than them or way better sex or better communicating better about sexuality. And perhaps they are. Uh, but at any rate, there's this contempt for the world. And, you know, kind of I, I think a lot of conservatives just believe that, like, you know, women shouldn't be having um, sex. They shouldn't be enjoying themselves. And so that that's why birth control is bad. And we just need to get rid of it. Um, rarely will that be said out in the open, but you will see people uh, cheer for the Hobby Lobby decision. You will definitely see people cheer for the Roe v. Wade decision being overturned if that happens in the in the next year or two, right? So. Yeah. So uh, moving on to another element of fantasy, you bring up the case of Cassie Bernal. Uh, she's been the subject of a lot of evangelical media, um, especially songs. Like I remember hearing a few growing up. Um, so. First of all, who was she and then what is her kind of mythological or symbolic function in white evangelical fantasy? That you're seeing, yes, yeah, yeah. So she, um, she, um, and, and this is the the one that the the song was actually written about. If if I'm not uh, 
Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Cassie Benal was a girl at uh, Coleman High School who, in 1999, uh, was killed during the shooting that happened in Littleton, Colorado. Um, there was a story that came out very quickly about her that, you know, having been in, you know, the, the, one of the shooters apparently, you know, coming, coming into the library, asking her if she was a Christian, she had just converted to Christianity. So she bravely said yes. And then he shot her. Um, later reports indicate that this was completely made up. There, it doesn't seem like there's any evidence um, for this. There was another girl who did answer that she believed in God uh, called uh, Valine Schnur, I believe, who who said that she did believe in God and she was shot, but she survived her wounds. Um, the uh, contemporaneous reports about Cassie Bernal say that simply the the shooter uh, found her under a table, shouted peekaboo, and then shot her without querying her faith. Um, uh, just recently, uh, another girl's uh, name, a girl called Rachel Joy Scott, uh, what had a, a film version of her, you know, uh, and she and where she basically assumes Cassie Bernal's identity, and so the, um, so you know, this is another Columbine victim who the same story is told about, um, but you know, so so in any ways, um, if somebody, um, this, so this, there's a film version called I Am Not Ashamed that was released, I think, in 2016. Um, it would be very easy for a white evangelical who remembers Cassie Manal's story from 1999 to think that the Rachel Joy Scott I'm Not Ashamed movie is about the same person because they're basically taking the same story and just attributing it to two different people. Um, none of this actually happened as far as we can tell. Um, the, the shooters weren't going around shooting people based on on what they answered about their faith in Jesus. Um, it, I, I guess it's certainly possible, but it just, we don't have the evidence to say that these reports actually happened. But within a year of Columbine, you know, Michael W. Smith had uh, released a song about her uh, sermons around the world were using her as an example. We start seeing um, students in in news reports at the time talking about their their respect for Cassie Benal and hoping that they too would get a chance to be martyred during a school shooting or something like weird like this. Like this is weird psychotic stuff. Um, and the girls had no no responsibility for any of this, right? Like their, their story was taken and turned into a sermon illustration without their permission, right? So it's not their fault in the least, but there was something so attractive about this idea that Christians were persecuted. And I think that there is a certain surface level and uh, it's kind of a certain, a certain surface level analysis that kind of says, um, Persecution is good for somebody because if you have all of the power and you can trick yourself into thinking you're persecuted, then it justifies the aggression towards someone else, right? And there's there's truth to that, I think. But I think also there is some sort of enjoyment in the repression and the self-harm itself. I, I think that there's something in this idea that everyone hates me that I could perhaps actually enjoy just in its own terms, right? I can kind of wallow in how weird I am or how different I am. Um, you know, if, if I'm a, a Christian and not doing things that I think I should be doing with my life, then I can, you know, perhaps just, you know, enjoy thinking about myself as being peculiar if nothing else, right? And, and maybe that peculiarity and that uh, melancholia can be its own type of reward. Yeah. So kind of moving along similar lines um, regarding like a broader change in evangelical media um, is that white evangelicalism has really been 
developed an increasing intensity because of new forms of media, like first the radio and then later TV. Um, So how do these new formats offer an intensified fantasy of what you were talking about, kind of martyrdom? For a white evangelical. Yes, well, in the book, I try to trace the whole story of uh, you know the, the the radio preacher from kind of the the twenties and thirties onward up until today. Uh, obviously, uh, conservatives took over AM talk radio in a way that just liberals could never really compete with. Um, but the greatest example is, I, I think, clearly Fox. And then I'm I'm very kind of concerned to look at examples like Prager U or or Prager U, I think is how you say it. You know, these very uh, YouTube versions of like Fox for Gen Z or something now, um, but Fox News is is built precisely on this this idea that it's really cool and fun and exciting to be persecuted and um, you know you should just feel contempt for the world because the world's feeling contempt for you, and that's pure projection, right? But there's there's this intense enjoyment in wallowing in contempt and rage, even rage for your own grandkids, you know, those triggered little idiots that won't call me anymore, and you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, Fox News, I think, is, is just particularly interesting because it was kind of, uh, you know, its audience was paid for, literally paid for, um, you know, the, the, you know, Murdoch was paying per subscriber um, from day one, right? So it was kind of an astroturfed campaign. It never had any sort of... Of, of grassroots kind of organic growth. It was paid for from day one and it uh, it could lose money and it would still be valuable for the conservative party, right? And it's not valuable just because, you know, in kind of some abstract sense, it tells old people that they're on the losing side of power and they they, they have nothing left. And so they need to, you know, assert themselves. It, it's powerful because like what a, a state media apparatus gives you is uh, a, a voice of power that would ostensibly change hands if parties, one party, you know, took power from the other. Um, what privatized uh propaganda gives you is uh, is a, a consistent voice that keeps preaching the same message regardless of who is in power, right? So, so privatized media kind of has this whole different series of advantages that just a state-run propaganda network could never have. And I, I think that that's what Fox News gives us as still like far and away the, the biggest name in cable news. Yeah. So kind of following along this kind of political analysis, um, towards the end of the book, you turn to the rise of the Tea Party and you point to two factors that predicted one's affiliation with it. The first was affiliation with the Republican Party, uh, which no one was really surprised by. But the second was a desire. <laughs> Except for them, yeah, right? Well, they, you know, they, they did not know that. Right. But, yeah, yeah. So. Um, but the second was a desire for theocracy. So what does this tell us about the underlying nature of both right-wing politics in general and its connection to white evangelicalism? Yeah, well, it tells us a couple of things. So this was interesting when the you know the Tea Party, the first longitudinal data about the Tea Party came out. Um, the uh, you know views on like government debt or size of government or roles of government or whatever else that they said that was their big organizing factors. These just were they were in the data, but they weren't very prominent factors in the data. They didn't really differentiate Tea Party affiliation from anything else. Uh, however, theocracy did, and when um, the surveys were querying theocracy, they would use wording for like uh, it was talking specifically like do you think you know the government should be uh you know should the ten commandments be law or should you know officials invoke their beliefs about god into um discourse about legislation that that type of thing that that's the meaning of theocracy here 
But um, and I don't know how um, well I really articulate what I think is underneath that in in this section of the book. One thing that I, I wish I kind of brought more to the surface is that I, I do really think that 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 belief in theocracy as an identifying marker is yet again a cover for white supremacy, right? Because in early beliefs about the Tea Party, you have um, if you try to kind of directly ask whether or not they have anti-black views, they can they can easily sidestep that, right? But it's also a belief, you know, it's also a group that emerges in response to the first black president. Um, the Republican Party at that time, no survey ever showed even half of the Republican Party believing that Barack Obama was actually a citizen, right? So you have this clearly racist birther myth. Um, but I think that this desire for theocracy really is quite clairvoyantly a cover for anti-black racism, right? It's, it's not, um, we need to have, you know, God's laws governing this country because God is more moral. It's, uh, we need to have God's laws covering this country because otherwise we have these, um, you know, uh, you know, degenerate secularists who, you know, as as typified by this uh, black president, um, this this drive for theocracy was clearly covering for anti-black racism. I think. Yeah. So, kind of going towards the end of the book, you turn to both Corey Robin and Hannah Arendt. Um, you argue that two significant pillars to white evangelical fantasy are a combination of hierarchy and nostalgia. Um, so, can you kind of unpack how these two work together and how they inform white evangelical fantasy? Yes. Well, so uh, Corey Robin, who, again, the evangelical mind, I can't recommend that book enough the, the to people. The reactionary mind. It's not the evangelical, yeah. sorry, the reactionary mind. Yeah. Um, the, the reactionary mind, he makes this case that uh, however far you want to go back, if you want to go back straight to Edmund Burke, it's uh, conservatism has always been about hierarchy. Um, and there's, there's very kind of clear examples that seem very intuitive once you put them out in the open, right? So, you know, uh, for example, during the Civil War, in order for the, the, uh, white slave owners to get poor whites uh, to die for them or that cause, um, what you needed to do was get the poor whites not to identify as poor, but as white, right? Because if they identify as poor, then they can uh, more likely identify with other members uh, of, of that kind of like that, that you know, st- uh, stomped on on class, right? Uh, not, which is not the same as, as I hope it's clear. I'm not, I'm not trying to compare the position of the, the white worker uh, to that of the the black slave in that period, right? But there was a very very clear effort to make. Um make the the white worker identified not as a worker but as white right and, and so there's this there's this lure that hierarchy gives where you know hierarchy works really really well if you're at the top but it, it also again it works really well if you're just a few rungs down on the ladder as long as there's someone else beneath you you get a, a certain amount of satisfaction from that and then nostalgia gives us the enjoyment of an imaginary past, right? So this is what I, I think MAGA very clearly uh, evokes that, right? Make America great again. Uh, whenever you ask what, when was it great, um, the, the typical answer is, of course, you know, the 50s. <laughs> what was great about the 50s? Um, I don't know. Is it, is it the part where, like, uh, not everyone could vote yet? Is it the part where women didn't have access to birth control? Um, is it uh, where we were inventing social security and... And like government funding of education, probably not those things, right? So, so the you know there's this there's this kind of um, crude type of nostalgia that lets one enjoy an imaginary past, and again feel very self certain that the ideal world, the the world with the great hierarchy, where the better men rule the 
worse men and where the men rule the women. The, this ideal world of hierarchy will look like this imaginary past. And so these two ideas kind of work in tandem, I think, very carefully. Um, Corey Robin talks about uh, hierarchy in that sense. And then Hannah Arendt talks about hierarchy in terms of um, just hierarchies of contempt within fascism studies, for example, right? Um, so if you have like the the mob, uh, the masses and the leader, right, like the leader speaks a message that the mob hears one way, the close supporters, um, right? Uh, but then the masses here might hear that same message completely different. And then, um, you know, the world at large watching the, the fascist state uh, hears that same message again, yet completely different, right? So there's hierarchies of ways that messages are, are entertained and understood. There's hierarchies of contempt where the fascist fascist uh, feels deep, deep contempt for themselves, most of all, and they have to project that outward, but they don't project hate outward equally, right? People like themselves, um, you know, (laughs) maybe don't get quite so much contempt as somebody else who can be scapegoated. So yeah, so so the hierarchy and nostalgia, I think, work in very kind of surprising, but like once we start thinking about them, very kind of um, uh, very repetitive and very intuitive ways as well. Right. So that brings us kind of to the end of the book, but um, just to kind of bring it up to current events. Um, yeah. In the last like week or so um, there's been a lot of like, uh, I guess you could say a sort of like geopolitical skirmish we've been having with Iran um, after like, and I'm, I'm not asking for like an up-to-date, you know, analysis of what's happening out there. I know that's not your specialty, but I think particularly, of like after a missile attack, I think of Trump just tweeting a giant American flag, um, as well as other kind of media responses um, to this event, kind of with everything you've talked about with fantasies for martyrdom and violence and the end times. Can you kind of maybe unpack a bit about like how people are responding and interpreting these events? Right. Well, let's just start with the idea that that uh, eight in ten white evangelicals, Trump's base, um, say to uh, surveys that they believe that that violence in the Middle East ramping up is a sign of the end times. Right. So that puts us in a, a position of just starting from the position that if this leads to the end of the world, that's a good and exciting and fun thing for them. Right. Which I think itself is is quite terrifying. As we're recording this, um, for those listening, that we're six days out from the Soleimani assassination. Uh, just last night, Iran like sent some rockets over into Iraq. Um, just before we started recording, uh, President Trump like, you know, did some sort of uh, address to the nation, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this is, I think, a, a very deeply dangerous moment that we live in. Um, and it seems to me that, uh, you know, you're going back to the, the beginning of the, you know, the so-called misnamed war on terror. What I, what I very distinctly remember from like high school and like, you know, that my high school days when all of that was starting is that Iran has always been on the, the wish list for where to invade next. And they have never been closer than they are right now. And, and that's a war that we will definitely 
ultimately lose, right? And 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 I think it's important to understand that no amount of killing is going to be too much, right? No amount of bloodshed. They, they don't care if they kill every last troop in the U.S. They definitely don't care how many millions of Iranians they kill. Um, and you know, we that uh, we've still like nobody really seems to care in white evangelical worlds that a million and a half, probably more Iraqis were killed during that brutal war. So yeah, I, I I think it's very important to understand that there is no death toll that's going to be too much for this group. And it's just a question of how stupid we're going to be lurching into that, right? Um, because I, I, I do think that, you know, if there's any gleaming light to this, it's that Trump is is by nature a, a coward and doesn't want to look like an idiot, right? So he doesn't want to start a war for that reason. But he does have advisors telling him to start this war. And if there's anything that Trump believes in, it's, it's A, like, you know, look out for number one. And then B, I, I do think the only ideological belief that he really genuinely is committed to is is the idea that white people are better than everybody else. So when we combine these two things, yeah, we're we're in a potent mix. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's very flammable. Um, the the world could be completely changed within an hour, and 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 that's that's a horrifying state to be in. And I think we need to take seriously the idea that there is a lot of the population that just deeply enjoys sadism and cruelty, and and maybe we can't actually reason with that, and we just have to defeat it. Right? We have to shame it. We have to kick it out of public discussion. We have to not entertain uh, kind discussion between people who want to commit genocide. Uh, we have to ostracize, right? I, I think that we actually need to be stronger on those types of conversations and in what kinds of discourse we will entertain. Yeah, so that's very good, although very disturbing. But um, yeah, it can definitely be hard to feel kind of hope for change because you're kind of outlining a theory of subjectivity that gets kind of hooked or caught around, uh, as you put, sadism. Um, but Freudian and Lacanian uh, theory also offers ideas about change and transformation. So I'm wondering if you find anything in kind of Freudo-Lacanian psychology that kind of helps us think about transformation and resistance at all. Yeah, no, absolutely, right? So there's there's a, a number of different ways that Freud and Lacan thought about what they're actually trying to do with analysis. But one thing that if I could kind of paraphrase an idea that seems to come back over and over again between the two of them is that people aren't going to change until they desire to change, right? And, and the way that the psychoanalysts would classically say that is that in order to traverse the fantasy, they must articulate a certain desire to the analyst, right? So... In psychoanalysis, the analyst is not there to give you the correct answers or to articulate the way that you should think of things. The analyst is basically there to be a conversation partner or a canvas that you kind of paint your symptoms upon. Um, and, you, and you make progress precisely by articulating your desire, right? Not not by having some sort of realization about a true self, but uh, articulating what you want and, and learning something about the con construction of your subjectivity through that. So uh, the where I take that um, pedagogically, for example, in the classroom, 
I don't believe that as a, as a college teacher, my job is to simply transfer information, right? There's an aspect of information transfer that's very important in my job. But if I'm going to actually inspire a student to learn something on their own, then what I need to do is have a certain amount of performance, a certain amount of intrigue, a certain amount of, of jest or question asking or provocation um, that will get the student to want to uh, learn the answers for herself, right? And, and learn things that maybe I don't even know, like on her own time or doing her own reading. Um, and so that to me is is uh, the way that I apply psychoanalysis to the classroom. And I think that it's worth thinking about the ways that we can apply that same concept to conversations between um, uh, people, right? Like I, I'm not going to, for example, convert my like MAGA family members to my, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, communist views of, of, of the world, right? Like, uh, but, but we could have that conversation if they articulated a desire to begin thinking, right? Um, the trick is that you, you can't force someone to think. I, it's, it's a losing effort to try to force someone to think. Um, and so you you have to simply be there and, and to not give ground to the deleterious desires of the other who wants to make the world worse. Um, but you also, you know, you can't you can't exercise those those desires from them. So, um, if if there's any good news in that, I think it's that um, people are, largely are enjoying repression. But repression is a very unnatural state, um, and occasionally repression breaks through, and people decide to um, uh, you know. Um, uh, make a change or articulate a desire, uh, something along those lines. And, and people do that all the time. That That's why we, we do anything ever. Yeah. So kind of a final question. Um, you just mentioned uh, MAGA family members, and you've talked uh, at a couple points in the book about kind of the belief system you grew up in. You kind of grew up with a lot of the beliefs you've been discussing, um, but you left. And I'm wondering if you could end this by maybe just telling us a bit about your process of leaving and what lessons you draw from your own story for how we should kind of respond to and think about this movement today, both for people outside of it offering criticism, but also for those who maybe feel stuck in it. Yeah, it would be unfair to say that it was any clear cut key moment. You know, it was a series of events that happened over, um, wow, uh, something like five, seven years, something like that. Um, But it would be fair to say that I grew up in a very, very conservative evangelical home. Um, That was uh, a lot of my friends were in that exact same situation. And I was 100% a true believer. And that started falling apart a little bit for me, or at least moderating around the age of 20 by reading theology and philosophy for the first time. And so I think part of why I still teach this stuff is that I, I do actually believe, even just anecdotally from personal experience, that there's um, quite a bit of potential to to actually generate some um, not just not just idea changing, but but actual life style changing as a result of of thinking through theology and philosophy. Um, so there was that, um, and then I think the you know there was like a, a breakup at one point of a, of a very toxic relationship that I was in that was um, you know one of my motivators. But I, I think that the the greatest um, 
shift for me, I think, came when I sort of started losing my inherited heterosexist beliefs. Um, several friends and family members kind of came out to me all at the same time, um, and I stopped, you know, being able to hold this, you know, anti-gay line that um, the church that I was on staff at at the time um, that required. And so I, I lost that job, and that you know, watching friends kind of react to that, and a, a lot of friends being very supportive of getting rid of me, and you know, uh, you know, former congregants in my church getting like being very supportive of of, of me uh, getting kicked out of this position for having a different way of thinking through things. That that was very formative to me. Um, later on, the pastor that fired me was arrested himself for having, uh, well, for for assaulting underage boys, and um, in in again watching the way that my former church, uh, you know, reacted to that and kind of saw his um, sins as a temporary moral failing, whereas uh, my sins were still kind of held against me, <laughs> my sin precisely of of thinking in rebellion against God, right? Like a, you know, of, of reading books and stuff like that. Um, it, watching the ways that those dynamics played out. I I think was was deeply deeply formative for me just before I began seminary and actually began uh, kind of went into seminary with my faith already kind of falling apart and then within a year I think um, I was no longer really functionally a theist at all um, but yeah th- those types of changes happened because pre- I mean precisely because I, I always want to resist this idea this this very kind of facile version of analysis that people do of evangelicals saying that they're simply hypocrites. The hypocrisy is doing exactly what it's supposed to do, right? Uh, hypocrisy is the way to please the id and the ego and the superego all at once. It, it's not some sort of moral failing. It's it's it's, it's practically the point in, in many cases, right? Um, and I, you know, kind of learning the ways that my traditional beliefs had um, reified certain um, pathological parts of my identity or you know um, uh, psychology, um, the way that uh, these beliefs. Uh, were, were clearly harmful to me and others around me, um, but nevertheless seemed to be very, uh, I don't know, popular or supported within communities. It, it was it, all of these things kind of led me to walk away. It was precisely it was it wasn't it wasn't that I you know stopped believing something per se. It was that I really got interested in what a belief is doing. Like what what do we do with beliefs? Um, sometimes beliefs don't have any ramifications whatsoever on the world, right? You know, I always use the example with students of, uh, you know, whether or not I believe the world is flat or round. Uh, there's a correct answer there, but but it probably doesn't matter that much to day to day existence, right? Um, however, if I believe that vaccines are harmful to a child, then I might endanger my child's life, right? So certain beliefs matter a whole lot, and certain beliefs really have nothing to do with how we live our lives. And I think it was precisely um, getting into the way, especially in a seminary environment where you have a lot of people who are very kind of geeky. About about very obscure concepts that are clearly don't matter whatsoever, but are clearly doing a lot to reify their personality structure, which may fall apart otherwise. Um, that's very interesting to me. Uh, Lacan, at some point, maybe can, to tie up this idea, Lacan in Seminar 23 talks about the way that a, sometimes a symptom is the precise thing that's holding someone's world together, right? And maybe that symptom is a bad thing, but maybe if you take that symptom away from them, their life all of a sudden loses meaning, falls apart, loses the repetition that's barely just holding them together. 
And I think that that kind of symptom that holds our world together is precisely what a lot of beliefs are doing. Not all of them, for sure, uh, but a lot of them are. And so, so I think that for me, just losing a certain key ideas ended up. Uh, they, they always surprise you which key ideas you lose, and then everything else kind of spirals out from there, uh, because the ideas that you defend are never the ones that are actually important to you. But um, just losing a few key ideas led me to not just rethink what I thought, um, but to to have very substantial changes in how I lived my life. And and what I do for fun, and who my friendship circles are, and how I interact with family, and 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 so on. Yeah, thank you so much for opening up like that. Um, kind of final question: uh, What are you working on now? <laughs> Uh, I am not quite ready to announce any sort of details, but it, I am writing again, and I'm writing much more slowly right now. I'm, I'm kind of letting the ideas come to me as as they as they do. Um, but I'm very interested in thinking more about climate change and borders and what the future looks like, and uh, both both negative and also kind of positive and very normal feeling futures. Um, one example I use right now is um, from a, a story I've been working on. You kind of imagining what it would be like to have my grandchild talking to their grandchild um, about how in the past there used to be sand on all the beaches and, and now there's only sand in the Great Lakes. Um, you know, so like, you know, what is it, what is it you know, and how you guys, I, I like the, the idea of kind of imagining what it would look like for, um, you know, my progeny several generations on to think that it, it seems ridiculous that there ever would have been sand on like the East or West Coast. Um, that just, obviously that's, that's impossible. We've never seen that, right? You know, because like, you know, just the, in other words, once the sea levels rise, once the great changes really kick into effect, what's what's going to be horrifying and, and what, on the other hand, is actually just going to feel like just normal life. This is just the way that the world is now. Um, so that's I'm very interested in that. I'm very interested in thinking through white evangelicalism as a schema for the type of um, vile, bigoted, xenophobic beliefs that happen uh, in the years ahead. Uh, we live during the greatest migration that the world has ever known and probably will ever know. So my wager is that uh, religion and you know, reactions uh, against change are going to continue to be very important, and we're not just so going to like secularize and and all kind of come together for the common. Good. Good. We're actually going to see more contestation and more zero-sum bickering over over uh, dwindling resources. And, and so I, I, that, that's what I'm interested in working on right now is thinking through how can I apply this knowledge that I have about religion to kind of think about the future, both negative and positive. Yeah, you've got plenty to work with. Well, Tad, thank you. <laughs> right. Yeah, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for inviting me on. This has been great. <laughs> <laughs>